Welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This week's lecture looks at the neuroscience behind gender differences in the brain and questions how much we should really believe stereotypes about men and women. Samira Ahmed introduces Professor Gina Rippon, who examines the use, misuse and misinterpretation of neuroimaging data in the study of sexual dimorphism in the brain. When Martin got in touch and said, would I introduce um, Gina, I said yes. One, because of the topic, but also I hadn't been here. And uh, of course, Carl Sagan was here and all those other great institution lectures I used to watch as a child. So it's a great honour. But also, before I came, I'd been reading a book called The Lie Tree by Frances Harding, which has just won the Costa Children's Book Prize. Have any of you read it? Um, Gina's reading it now. It's about a girl um, in the Victorian age whose father is a scientist. And it was fascinating for how it's about how early on the science of the brain was being used to try and justify the treatment of women as inferior. And she's always been told about her brain size and her delicate frame. And I thought that was such an interesting coincidence. Um, here's a bit about Gina, and then it's really over to her. I'll take questions, be chairing questions after, and we'll have microphones. And I was told you're never more than 10 metres away from the desk, so you will all have a chance to ask if you've got some good questions. Um, Gina Rippon is Professor of Cognitive Neuroimaging at the Aston Brain Centre at Aston University, and she was previously at the University of Warwick. She's a cognitive neuroscientist with a background in psychology and physiology, and uses brain imaging techniques. I'm very conscious as a journalist, we sometimes have stories about brain imaging, about this part of the brain flashes out, which reveals this, and I think she's going to be dealing a lot with some of the myths about what imaging actually can reveal about the workings of the brain. Um, most recently, her work has been in the field of developmental disorders such as autism, and she served as president of the British Psychophysiology Society, now the British Association of Cognitive Neuroscience, and has been made an honorary fellow of the British Science Association. Crucially, she writes and speaks on the use and misuse of neuroimaging techniques in the study of sex and gender differences, um, and recently featured in the BBC Horizon programme, Is Your Brain male or female. And additionally, which I've already been discussing with her, she's involved in campaigns to correct the underrepresentation of women in STEM subjects. And I'm particularly interested in her views on things like psychology as a GCSE and an A-level, and indeed its whole relationship um, with the broader study of brain science. So, over to you. Thank you very much, Samira. Um, Good evening, everybody. Nice to see so many people. Um, I'm not surprised, not because immodestly I think you're all here to hear me, but I know you've all got brains, um, you've all got genders of some kind, um, and even a gender agenda of some kind, and everybody I know, having talked about this quite a lot, has an opinion, um, and I'm sure you're here to share that with us. So I get the wonderful opportunity to give you my opinions, and then after that, hopefully, we'll get lots of questions. So moving on as quickly as I can, um, as Samira mentioned, I'm at the Aston Brain Centre, and we're really fortunate there that we have the full range of brain imaging techniques, which I have access to, and that allows me to um, actually produce some wonderful images, images which will show us um, where the brain is active, um, structures, pathways in the brain, we can look at brain structures, brain functions. They're wonderful pictures, I'm really proud of them. But we will see that they should be part of the solution of the issues we're going to be talking about tonight, but actually they can be part of the problem. Way back in, in 1673, um, Dilabar actually said, made the wonderful st statement, the mind 
has no sex. Now, um, Samira mentioned a book that it's worth reading, so you're going to go away with a reading list today as well, because there's a wonderful book uh, by Londa Scheibinger called The Mind Has No Sex, which actually looks at effectively how women disappeared from science um, and their biology and their biologi biological uh, inabilities were, were used to kind of write them out of science. But she called the book The Mind Has No Sex because that's what Labar said way back in, 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 as I say, in, in 1673. And he'd said, looking at the new, he was a new uh, philosopher, um, became very interested in the new science of anatomy, and he eventually concluded that having looked at all of the structures and functions which seemed to be important for high levels of achievement, he felt that there was really no differences between men and women. He felt that there was no reason why, given the right opportunities, women shouldn't be successful as men. So way back in 1673, now... If people had listened to him, we could stop now, and this would be the shortest his, uh, lecture in the history of the Royal Institution. You might all want your money back. But obviously, people didn't listen, and what's been going on since then is actually trying to contradict his, his conclusion. So let's have a look. What I, the title of the talk is How Neurononsense Joins Psychobabble to Keep Women in Their Place. So really, to give a historical context, what do we, we mean by women's place? Well, right at the very beginning, when people were looking for differences, women's place was very much down the pecking order. The idea was that women were inferior, and new scientists and new neurologists, etc., were saying, this is the given, women are inferior, and we need to demonstrate why they're inferior, why they're... Um, you know, don't achieve as, as, as much as we do. And so there is a range of quotes, there's a range of people supported this. Um, some of my scientific heroes, unfortunately, believed very strongly in women's inferiority and science's role in proving that. Darwin was one, Broca was another, a great brain scientist, but was really into the science of craniometry, where you're measuring skulls and drawing conclusions about people. Um, and but perhaps the most interesting quote, um, one that we might bear in mind is from Le Bon, who says, you know, clearly there is no argument that women are inferior to men. And he, he railed on at some length and said there may be some examples, uh, exceptions, but they were a bit like a gorilla with two heads. So exceptional women are gorillas with two heads in his particular thinking. So this is what we were trying to prove. And the idea was that Biology is destiny. It's, you know, whatever women would like to do, whatever we feel is right or wrong, their brains are different from men's. This is part of their essence, what we call essentialism. So we really shouldn't be going against it. And we're talking about the natural order of things. So that's the 18th century. The 19th century, slight shift in that it wasn't just that women were inferior. There was a bit of attention to the fact that they were reproductive capacity is very important, that they were slightly fragile, that even though they might like to do the same sort of things as men, um, they really shouldn't. And so if educational opportunities were made available to them, this was actually not a very good idea. Um, their ovaries would shrivel, um, they would no longer be able to run a household, etc. end of civilization as we know it. Swiftly move on to the 20th century. We were still looking then... Um, at women's, the different uh, 
roles that women could play, women's place. But in this case, it was much more to do with the roles that they might play. So that we'd moved just from saying they're inferior to saying they do have particular roles. So the stereotype had kind of shifted from being prescriptive, you are inferior, to proscriptive, these are the things that you should do. Um, and given the century, there was quite a lot of, of reference to what I call, um, sorry, psychobabble, which is really... Um, looking at, you know, we must start with the realisation that as much as women want to be um, good scientists or engineers, they want first and foremost to be womanly companions of men and to be mothers. So there was a clear message in the 20th century that women had a particular role and they should fulfil that role, and that was based on their, their biology. And, and in order to um, fulfil that biology, they shouldn't stray uh, from any particular path. Big argument of the 20th century, which is very much biology versus society. And in the end of the sort of 1970s, with what I call the first wave of feminism, so a bit like we've had the first wave of neuro-nonsense from people like Le Bon, here we've got people saying, this is actually not right. Society is prescribing these particular roles, and they're using biology to make sure that those roles, which were currently inferior, um, are what women fulfil and keeps them in their place. So there's big arguments along those lines. And there was quite a lot of um, uh, reference to hormones. Hormones were actually much more interesting at that time than, than brains. They had much more access. You could measure hormones. You could infer what was going on hormonally. So you get these wonderful descriptions, you know, PMS, be afraid, um, all about, you know, the trouble with women. They do have problems with these raging hormones. You've got uh, scientific assessments, the menstrual distress questionnaire, you know, talk about loading uh, the data that you're collecting. I've never come across an ovulation euphoria questionnaire, for example. <laughs> So really what the idea was, and there was you know, references uh, in the popular press, um, Bay of Pigs uh, disaster, which people, some people may be familiar with. There was actually a statement in the press, wasn't it lucky, that there wasn't a woman in charge at the time, because if she'd been subject to raging hormones, you know, who knows what would have happened. You know, the men in charge having done such a cracking job of it anyway, of course. But um, <laughs> Anyway, so... Let's quickly move on to the brain, because I think that's why you're here, a lot of you. At the end of the 20th century, one of the things that people started looking at was the idea that there was some kind of fixed organisation in the brain, that different bits of the brain did different things, which, of course, is a echoing back to the old kind of phrenology idea. So it's a sort of neo-phrenology. But there was um, an interest in the fact that you know, the left hemisphere was logical, the right hemisphere was creative, suggestion that the right hemisphere was female, the left hemisphere was male, being superior, um, logical, etc. Also, these kind of data started emerging, which started people getting really interested. This is a picture of um, male brain, female brain, or a group of, of males and females uh, carrying out a language task. One of the things reported was big emphasis on left hemisphere activity in the male brain, whereas bilateral activity in the female. Now, this is an example of the kind of genuine, genuine at the time finding which has actually captivated the imagination of people we'll be coming to talk about shortly, particular authors who grab onto ideas, don't really look to see how current they are or how well this research is carried out. But this was immediately adopted in saying, oh, you know, men are logical, they use their left brains, they're the ones who can really uh, put forward a, a clear logical argument, whereas women use both sides of the brain, so their emotional side is more in touch with their logical side, etc. 
Now, I did actually check this morning. Um, this paper, sorry, this paper has been cited uh, over 1,400 times. It was published in 1995. It's actually wrong. Um, not been replicated, uh, data reanalyzed, and yet, and yet, you will still hear people talking about women use both sides of the brain and men use one side. So this is the beginning of slight alarm about how what the brain can do, um, or what we tell people the brain can do, actually um, can be misleading. The other thing to look at was still size matters. The idea that people were looking at, you know, used to think that because men had bigger brains, therefore they were superior. Now, neuroscience is looking in a much more subtle way at different structures. The idea was that different structures of the brain, like the corpus callosum, bridge of, of nerves here, or the ratio of gray matter to white matter, particular types of, of nerve cells and their distribution, uh, parts of a hippocampus, all of these were originally measured as different. Now, we now know, with neuroscience techniques moving on, that actually what's really important is you just don't take the whole brain and measure it and say, oh, that's bigger than that, what a surprise. Um, in particular, because generally the structures people were looking at were bigger in men. So we go back to this old kind of 18th century idea that, oh, men have got bigger hippocampus, they've got, you know, women have got a richer corpus callosum. But the trouble is, as we now found, and this is why I wanted to show you this slide, size matters. So... The one clear difference between male and female brains is that male brains are bigger, on average, about 10% bigger. But that's because men, on average, are about 10% bigger. Their hearts are bigger, their livers are bigger, their kidneys are bigger, etc. And we don't necessarily draw a huge amount of inference about liver function, kidney function, heart function, but we do with, with brains. And the key thing is, once you correct for the difference in brain size, all of these differences disappear. Uh, it's a paper just published beginning of this year saying this whole idea, big, big better analysis of studies showing that, in fact, um, there was no sexual dimorphism in the hippocampus. But again, these are the ideas that lodge themselves um, possibly in the public imagination, people writing books that capture the public imagination, even, as we shall see, scientists who should know better. So this was at the end of the 20th century. Um, so we're starting to see the brain re-emerging in much more subtle ways, um, but differences being used possibly um, in less subtle ways. Now, quickly then to the 21st century. So women's place. Now, I'm going to go through these really quickly because they're probably statistics with which people are familiar. Where is women's place in the 20th century? There are gender gaps wherever you look. Um, I've chosen gender gaps in education, um, gender caps in uh, the A-levels that uh, people choose to do. Uh, almost all computing subjects are taken by, by males, right down to the uh, sociology subjects, uh, most of, more of which are, are taken by females. Um, higher education, these are the kind of degree levels. Um, so at the bottom, we've got uh, engineering, a uh, very small proportion of females here doing either undergraduate or postgraduate courses. Um, and similarly, if you look at the top, medicine, interesting, might want to talk about that later. But it's clear that there are big gender gaps. If you look at not necessarily universities, you look at um, apprenticeships taken up um, in 2012, 2013, it's pretty clear what the gaps are there. You look at children's care and hairdressing, over 90% taken by females, engineering, construction skills, vehicle maintenance, IT and telecoms, 
all taken by boys. And this, this relates to the, the STEM issue that we've talked about before. So clearly there's something still going on. There is a gender gap. Now, you don't need to say, are people still thinking, you know, is this something to do with the brain? Well, okay, I think, and hopefully I'll get a chance to really run you through all of this this evening, there's some 21st century breakthroughs, which I think are really, really important. But in almost all cases, sorry, this is also another example about the glass ceiling, um, where I think there's quite an interesting statistic here, fewer women leading FTSE uh, 100 firms than men called John, which is an interesting way of, of thinking of those kinds of statistics. So, gender gap, what can neuroscience do about it? Well, I think there are three particular areas, and the first two is what I'm... Well, the first one is what I'm mainly going to be talking about, and the second two we will touch on at the end. We need some game changers to try and ad address these issues. Surely neuroscience, with all these wonderful techniques that I've, I've mentioned very briefly, can help. So first of all, the brain imaging breakthrough. I'll work through all of these three, but the brain imaging breakthroughs, I've shown you the kind of pictures. We have the technology. We have the ability to move on from the kind of old phrenology idea. We can look at millisecond, we can look at fun brain function in milliseconds, in millimeters, sizes in the brain. So surely, with all of this wonderful technology, we could really have some insight into the answers. Now, neuroscience, the beginning of the 21st century, great for people like me, um, really popular. People think, you know, all sorts of... Neuroscience can explain everything, not just male-female differences, you know, important things like Bob Dylan's genius and, and, and who caused the banking collapse. Um, even used for um, marketing, so uh, neuro, you can get a whole range of neuro drinks, etc. So really, neuro is the new black. So with all of this interest, if you like, we should be able to solve some of these problems. These images have been described as having a seductive allure in that people are much more likely to believe them, you know, a slightly dodgy scientific arg argument if you've got a picture of a brain image, much more likely to believe than if you've just got a boring old graph. We'll come back to that, and there is an issue associated with that. But, so have, are we thinking about women differently? Do we really believe that we're still the victims of our own biology? Um, Larry Summers notoriously, president of Harvard, said maybe there weren't very many women mathematicians because they didn't have the natural ability. Um, Nigel Short, uh, just last year, um, said that men were hardwired to be better chess players than women. Men and women do have different brains. This is a biological fact. So I think uh, Nigel Short is as good a neuroscientist as I am a chess player. Um, Tim Hunt, well, perhaps we won't talk too much about Tim Hunt, just at the moment. Um, also, shockingly, we should give up encouraging girls to do science. This is somebody who claimed that uh, because of prenatal hormones, um, girls were predetermined to prefer people to things and therefore wouldn't be scientists. Just unpack the number of you know, amazing assumptions in that particular statement. So we've still got this argument about biology being destiny, that we've got our nice... Um, male line, which is going to become, as I say, a captain of industry, and we've still got... And this is in the light of our knowledge that actually at birth there is no difference structurally between male and female brains. So we do have that biological evidence, but we still believe that things go differently. Right. So why are we at this stage? Well, we've got this wonderful neuroscience, but I think there's a problem. And what I'm really saying here is that there's two ways in which we can think about or two issues associated um, with uh, 
the ability that we have to do this amazing brain imaging. And I've called them neurotrash and neurosexism. So I'll just briefly go through um, what I mean by neurotrash. Um, and I hope there's nobody... Or I did actually give this talk and show this picture and that one of the authors was in the audience. And, um, I mean, I stand by the fact that it's neurotrash, but it did make the question and answer slightly interesting at the end. Um, OK, so neurotrash, briefly... This is the idea, this is what I call the popular books. The books, the, the, the neuroscience, fantastic that everybody thinks neuroscience is wonderful. Double-edged sword is that there is a bit of misunderstanding about what we actually do. And that gets ignored by people who want to write popular books. I mean, good for them, but, you know, if they're these self-help books, they really need to know what they're talking about. And there's a bit of misunderstanding about what brain imaging can do. So these are the kind of data I can collect, and people say, oh, isn't that wonderful? That means that you can read my mind. You can look at that picture and know what I'm thinking. Or you can look at the fact that there's a particular part of the brain lights up, and you know what that part of the brain is doing. Well, it would be nice to say that's true, but it is the case that brain images are not mind readers. We're not looking at things in real time. We're not what I call mind mappers. We don't say this little bit does language or this bit um, does emotion. We now know that the brain is hugely interconnected. The other thing that we need to put our hands up and confess, so that people who really believe that um, what they're looking at is a kind of real-time image, as though we're actually looking at the brain, and the phrase lighting up is used quite a lot. These kind of images, the ones that I've collected here, are, and I know personally to my cost, you can collect them very quickly, but the data analysis can take weeks, if not months. You have to go through it cleaning up the data, you have to match it to particular shapes of the brain, you have to filter it in particular ways, you have to set thresholds, then you have to colour code it in particular ways. So it tells a good story, which I can interpret because I knew what I was doing and I knew what the participants were doing and I knew how they behaved. But the people who write neurotrash or who take these wonderful images without really understanding them don't realise how much statistical manipulation is going on. And that's not in the sinister sense of the, of the word. It is just something that happens. And this is a story which some of you may be familiar with, but um, if you're not, then it actually tells the story quite nicely. There's a group of images in order to illustrate what was going on. Took a dead salmon... Uh, put it in an MRI scanner, and it's an organic, uh, you know, although dead, there is organic matter that you can address with an MRI scanner. And they showed this dead salmon um, pictures of happy and sad faces. Okay. <laughs> they, then, they then took the data, ran it through, obviously, slightly extended uh, manipulation, smoothing, filtering, etc. And they found at the end of it, there's a particular area which you could say that bit lights up. So they've found the bit of a dead salmon that responds differentially to happy and sad faces. <laughs> so this is known as the, uh, the dead salmon that launched a thousand skeptics. Unfortunately, not enough. Okay, so at the end of all of this, there are a whole range of books which I cheerily, even if the authors are in the audience, um, put under the heading of neurohype, neurobandwagons, neurobunk. They are the kind of... of Books, um, particularly in this area, where um, people are saying, you know, why men don't listen and women can't read maps. They're looking at, they take brain imaging, brain imaging data, misinterpret it. Um, Luanne Brizendine, I'll come back to her, she is a real doozy when it comes to these sort of... Um, uh, Luanne. <laughs> um, and a whole range of books all, you know, change your brain, change your life. 
the God part of the brain. So it's fantastic as a newer image. You think, well, people really think we can do fantastic things. But there is a downside to this, which I'll come back to. And this, of course, you know, a real bugbear, men are from Mars and women from Venus. I won't go into it in detail now, but the other aspect of this, as well as misusing the brain images that they, they misrepresent, is sometimes they're very careless. Um, and they use or misuse data, or they take a, something, an abstract they read in a journal, and they quote it and say, you know, this proves that men are different from women. Um, in uh, this particular book, as I say, one of my favorites, uh, she, she says that boys are less able to detect intonation in the adult human voice. So effectively, men aren't good at picking up, you know, not empathic. If you actually trace back the, refer the science that she's referring to, it's actually done on songbirds. So she's drawing amazing conclusions about males and females based on songbirds. Um, this is another book which talks about um, a tiny attention to detail and rapid reactivity of the male uh, perceptual system, uh, which means they're much better able to be um, eagle-eyed aviators, radar, uh, read radar, etc. That, that particular, again, trace back the science, was looking at uh, baby chicks pecking at corn. Um, and male baby chicks were quicker at picking up the corn um, than the female chicks. So that might tell you a bit about chicks, but it probably doesn't tell you much about aviators, or you would hope. So overall, um, I think this is something in terms of the kind of dustbin of, of history. We really need to look at these books very carefully for reasons that I will go into. The next stage is slightly more worrying for me as a scientist and, and for you, obviously, all with interest in science, is what we call neurosexism. And that's where the scientists themselves, for whatever reason, not necessarily um, deliberately misleading, are still kind of backward-looking. They're still taking this assumption that men are different from women, and they're looking for differences. We looked at the end of the 20th century, Lots of publications about, you know, men having a bigger hippocampus, etc. Why are we still looking for differences? And this is a question that we'll probably need to come back to at the end. Now, this is a, a colleague of mine, Cordelia Fine, coined the term neurosexism. And she said we'd really need to look at our own science and pick out some of the problems that are actually arising. Um, and these two examples here, um, both of which have been... Um, taken to task in the public domain, so I'm not hopefully um, setting the Royal Institution up for any kind of libel suit. This, is, this was something which was quite popular um, now two years ago now. Big Daily Mail headlines, at last the truth, men and women's brains are wired differently, um, you know, and if it comes from the Daily Mail, it must be true. Um, again, if you look at the science, uh, and this is what the authors said, taken together, these results reveal fundamental sex differences in the structural architecture of the human brain. And the scientists themselves claim that they found quite marked, significant differences. Now, actually, the pathways they show are a tiny proportion of the pathways they measured. So the ones they're talking about um, are actually a tiny proportion. There was a huge number of pathways they measured which weren't significantly different worth bearing in mind. The other thing, and this comes back to, I hope you've still got effect size in mind, um, is that this is the biggest effect size. So tiny, tiny differences, enough to be statistically significant. Um, and this is another, another wiring paper where we hypothesized men's lower brain connectivity. They were talking about differences, which were of this order, um, might reflect optimization of functions that require specialized processing, such as spatial orienting. And then they're talking about women's greater connectivity in language. Now, 
apart from the fact that those images weren't really that different, the, the actual statistics, if you look at it, these authors didn't actually measure um, spatial cognition or language. They just took the stereotype that was out there and interpreted their data in those terms. And I think that's really important to realize that for whatever reason, scientists are perpetuating, sustaining these stereotypes. And of course, you know, why, this is something we could talk about at the end possibly, why, why are scientists doing this? Okay, so at this point, we could say, stop there, I've said, oh, God, look, you know, neurotrash, neurosexism, neuro, neuroimaging is fantastic, but look how it's being misused. But, um, still keeping just about to time, um, we, we really need to say, okay, we do have some fantastic things to share. We can do this properly, and that's really important. We can train people to understand what the difference between neurotrash and non-neurotrash. We can be careful about um, looking at neuroimaging publication. But a really other important breakthrough of my three game changes in the 21st century is this concept here, that brains are plastic and, slightly different version, brains are permeable. Now, this is something which is really good news, but it's also bad news, and it is of relevance to this particular topic. So... Again, I won't go through this in detail because it's the kind of thing people are becoming familiar with. We used to think, if you, did, you, know, if you were trained in medicine 40 years ago, possibly, you'd be taught that you know, a child is born with the adult number of neurons, um, the brain grows because of the connections between the, the neurons and the pathways, um, grows through life, maybe there's a certain amount of damage or illness that you uh, affects the brain, but you don't get any more neurons. And then, for those of us, uh, sadly, on the, you know, slightly on the wrong side of, of 50, or even more than slightly, actually, um, your grey cells, you know, you fall off the, the, the cortical cliff, your grey cells disappear, you never get them back again, um, and you gradually, or not so gradually, um, gracefully or not so gracefully, decline into senility. That's actually not the case. We now know that our brains are plastic throughout our lives, and everything that happens to us changes our brain. Um, the examples originally given um, were in taxi drivers, people who'd done the knowledge in London, um, part of the brain that's important um, for spatial cognition, the hippocampus, is larger in taxi drivers, um, also showed that, for example, Tetris, uh, the, the game with the kind of cascading cubes, um, that's a very complicated spatial cognition task. If you give a group of people um, quite intense training in Tetris over six weeks, um, their brains will change, and so will their spatial cognition abilities, interestingly. So things that you actually do, that you learn, and people will know about examples about musicians, etc. Um, also jugglers. Um, why juggling? Well, it's quite a complicated task. You can find quite a lot of people who don't know how to juggle, um, and then train them to juggle and show how their brains have changed. So that's the good news, fantastic news. Brilliant for you know, people aging, people who've had some kind of damage, uh, people who believe in particular kinds of education, people who want to do something different with their lives. You're not fixed with your old sort of glass brain that's not going to shift at all. Your brain can change. So fantastic news. So why am, I, why am I talking about it in terms of um, a kind of caveat uh, warnings that I'm giving you this evening? The key thing is that we're talking about here about experience-dependent plasticity. So everything, everything you experience changes your brain in a particular way throughout your life. Um, and it might shift back again. They've looked at retired taxi drivers, interestingly. Um, if you stop doing things, that will change your brain too. But supposing you don't have the experience. 
Supposing you're never given a Lego set, you never get practice with spatial cognition. Maybe, just maybe, and we'll come on to that later, that may affect how your brain works. And it's also crucially interesting that it's not just experiences. One of the things, and I'm going to talk about it very briefly, is its attitudes as well. We've shown that people's um, belief uh, in their you know, socioeconomic status, um, there, is, there is an association between your socioeconomic status and your brain. So different structures of your brain are slightly different depending on your socioeconomic status. Now, that could be okay, health, uh, access to health, health, access to education, what kind of occupation you have. Now that we know the brain changes, all of that may be significant. But it's also the case that your perceived socioeconomic status is associated with changes in your brain. So where you think you are in the pecking order also has an effect on your brain. Also, things like stereotype threat. Now, I won't go into a lot of details, and, and most of you will probably be familiar with the idea that if you take a, 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 particular, a member of a particular group um, and say, you know, you're asking them to carry out a particular task, and either overtly, you know, your lot are rubbish at this kind of thing, or covertly, would you just tick the female box at the top of this uh, test score? You actually prime the person to think, oh, this is something which people like me find difficult. Unsurprisingly, very often the performance declines as, as, a, as an aspect of being exposed to stereotype threat. What we now know is it also changes the brain. And I'm going to show you that shortly, but the key thing to take from this message is that we're not looking at biology or society anymore. They're completely entangled. So it's really important that we understand what society can be doing to our brain, and similarly what that brain can be doing back to society, uh, in order to try and unpick this whole kind of gender gap issue. Right, now this is, uh, again, there are a lot, uh, lot of studies looking at stereotype threat, but this is a particular not particularly nice one. This was done by Mary Jane Raga um, about eight years ago. Um, the task was a mental rotation task. Take a 3D object, um, mentally rotate it in your mind and see if you can match it to one of, of four exemplars you're given. So it's a spatial cognition task. Um, what she actually did, she had three groups of women and we'll talk a bit about that afterwards. She gave one lot um, a neutral message, please, can you carry out this task? So they had this kind of standard instructions. She gave another lot the negative message. This is a mental rotation task. Uh, females do find it challenging, but, you know, never mind, I'm sure you'll do fine, dear. Um, <laughs> and the positive message was, actually, this is a perspective-taking task. So if you can imagine this particular object, if you can take a different perspective on it, Actually, women are rather good at that task. Um, off you go. So, obviously, I wouldn't be telling you this if, if, if we didn't have these kind of findings. The women who'd had the positive message made far fewer errors, significantly fewer errors, than the women who had the negative message. So, they performed the same task, but given a positive uh, context, they did better. Now, what was interesting was it also demonstrated differences in their brains. Now, I've already said things like, you know, we can't pinpoint particular parts of the brain and say it does this. But emotion regulation, we do know, is associated with that part of the brain. So there was much more activity in the, motor, in, in the emotion regulation aspect of the brain. Whereas the women who'd had the positive message, much more activity around the kind of spatial cognition network. So they kind of they got on with the task, and they got it right. Whereas the ones who'd had the, the negative message got it wrong, and their brains were working differently. So I think that's 
that's really important to bear in mind. So when we talk about brains being plastic, they're not just plastic, they're also uh, permeable. Okay, so we've got our predetermined pathways. Now, the assumption of all of this is that these um, developmental pathways, these tram lines, trajectories, whatever you call them, are taking part in a neutral environment. The environment is the same for everybody. Obviously, some people will have differences depending on where they grow up, but it's nothing to do with whether they're male or female. So the idea is, you know, obviously, unspoken assumption is that um, these brains are exposed to the same environment. And so any differences that emerge must be something to do with this kind of inbuilt biological trajectory. Well, now we know that brains are plastic and brains are permeable, we can quickly challenge that. Um, even before children are born, uh, now, uh, you can know the, the sex of the child. You can go to those card shops uh, where they're awash with, it's a boy, big blue card, or it's a girl. Um, you know, and you've got the pink and blue blanket aspect. So right from the very beginning, there's already an inbuilt differential tension um, in this, you know, for this developing brain. And I've highlighted toys here, the pink and the blue thing, the let toys be toys. A, because I think it's important, because it does already expose children uh, to differences. And it's interesting that actually the whole kind of pink-blue thing um, that, that figures, again, in, in, in neurotype discussions. Um, children don't show pink-blue preferences before they're about two. Now, there's a lot gone on in a two-year-old's life. So there's something else shifting that. I mean, if our visual systems aren't different, physiologically, there's no reason why we should respond differently to pink or blue. But people do. So there's something going on. And I think it's important to realise that. And the whole business about experience as well. If your toys are different, you don't get the right kind of experience, that's going to be significant. So you send off your little brain to, to primary school. Um, really interesting study last year, looking at 8,000 boys and girls. This was in Israel, where they have very rigorous testing at set times um, uh, throughout the school, um, the school system. But they also have teachers who give very similar sort of tests in class. So they had a big longitudinal data set looking at um, how the teachers marked the boys and the girls and what the boys and the girls actually got in their high school, in their um, tests throughout life. And they've generated this metric called a teacher bias, and it showed that, that uh, on a systematic basis, teachers overmarked boys compared with what they actually got in the, in the state examinations and undermarked girls. So they took this teacher bias and they looked at all the other factors which might have affected these children. But they wanted to know um, what, how they did uh, in their high school exams, what subjects they chose to do, because you can choose to specialise and do extra science, etc. Their own um, uh, estimation of their scientific ability and the subjects they then went on to do uh, in university. And they found, on, you know, taking account of all those factors, teacher bias... So what the teachers, how the teachers assessed them when they were in primary school was the most significant factor of all in determining those, those choices. So we're not, you know, the, level, the, the playing field is not level. Children as young as six pick up the idea of stereotypes. Um, children as young as nine are already behaving according to the stereotypes. So little girls will say they're not very good at maths, they won't do maths, even though their performance uh, is demonstrating that that's not the case. 
Adolescence, you know, huge things going on in the brain there, much more susceptible, very, very plastic, a time of huge plasticity, and a time when, you know, the world is awash with stereotypes. Um, this is quite an interesting finding, looking at if your brain is, is very well connected at particular times of adolescence, you have much higher resistance to peer influence. If it's not very well connected, you're not so resistant to peer influence. And of course, a lack of connection or changes in connectivity is, carrying, is, is occurring at adolescence. You know we, know, we know the world is stereotyped. I did actually find a nice one from Formula One yesterday. There was an article saying that women had no place in Formula One, although they did look good in white like all other domestic appliances. Um, <laughs> so, you know, obviously what I'm saying is that it's really important to realise that the world, um, there's not a level playing field for these little developing brains. What's important is that that playing field, all those differences, will in fact um, change the brain in quite particular ways. And I think that's really important to realise and something that we should grasp onto. Okay, so now to the final um, game changer. And this is something which has actually been in the ether for some time, and there was a paper just before Christmas. And this whole idea, which is you know, a bit startling, sex redefined. Have we been wrong about sex all along? The idea of two sexes is simplistic. Biologists now think there's a wider spectrum than that. And that was based on uh, looking at chromosomes in individuals, looking at um, particular reproductive organs in individuals or, or vestiges of, of reproductive or, um, organs in individuals, looking at chromosomes, different cells in the same individuals, and finding it's not this nice little category differences that we've always assumed. This is, this is the basis of everything we talk about. Men are different from women. Of course they are. Well, actually, maybe they're not. Um, and this is, of course, something which people find quite challenging. Now, I'll just summarise this quite briefly, because, in fact, cognitive neuroscientists, like me, have been saying this for a long time. Before the biologists, we've been saying, do you know what? If you look at the kind of things you claim are different, are fixed because of biology, and then you look at them over time, you won't be able to see this scale, but it's actually looking at achievement in particular cognitive scores um, of individuals who were born in the 1920s right up to 1950s, and showing that the scores are improving um, associated with improvements in access to education um, in both sexes. But saying, if these are biological and fixed, how can they change over time? How can they be different in different cultures? That's really important. So disappearing differences is a, is a useful mantra. Similarities, not differences. Janet Hyde did a wonderful study, two meta-analyses, of looking at all the kind of things that, that we might be interested in, looking at cognition, um, at social skills, at personality skills, and saying that really we should be talking about similarities. The differences within groups of men and women are much greater than the differences between them. So she was saying, let's talk about gender similarities and, and really uh, acknowledge the fact that in all the studies we look at, um, the effect size is tiny. Finally, there was a lovely uh, couple of studies, a uh, wonderful title, black and white or shades of grey. Somebody saying, 
statistically, this whole categorical issue doesn't make any sense. Let's take all of these measures which supposedly differentiate men and women. 122 different measures they took, um, something like 13,000 individuals when they collected together all the, all the data from different studies. It was a whole range of everything, masculinity and femininity, a whole range of different skills which everybody knew differentiated men from women. And they said, if you run it through a different statistical procedure, you're actually looking at dimensions. You shouldn't be looking at all males are like this and all females are like this. You've got a single dimension, and you'll find males and females are distributed along this, this dimension pretty evenly. The only extremes um, you'll probably be interested to know, um, uh, there was virtually no... The, the, the biggest difference, male, male difference, was watching porn. No women watching porn. Wearing makeup at the other end. Um, I have had somebody in a talk like this stand up and say, do you know there is no known example of women stealing men's underwear off washing lines? So, <laughs> I, I don't know if that actually got measured, but you know, you kind of think, with enemies like that, who needs friends? Um, now, most recently, just before Christmas, this was the paper which came out, which was very exciting, I, I thought, wrote about it in The New Scientist. Um, again, I won't go into it in detail, but this was somebody who took um, 1,400 different brains, data on 1,400 different brains, actually looked at 300, over 300 different areas in the brains and actually rated them according to whether they were characteristic of all the male participants or characteristic of all the female participants or whether they were somewhere in between. And effectively, what, what she found was that um, we're really looking at a mosaic. If you look at tiny little differences within the brain, cellular structures, then actually there's no one area which is really characteristic. You say, that is a male brain. Or, or part of a male brain, or that is part of a female brain. So as well as our behaviours, our brains are mosaics. So actually, we should probably stop thinking about males versus females, and great breakthrough, focus on individual differences. So that would be really fantastic if we, if we could do that. So I think that's probably the strongest shift in thinking that we need, that neuroscience needs to support. I have to say, having written something um, in The Neuroscientist, um, as you can imagine, somebody like me stands up and gives talks and says men aren't different from women. Um, you can imagine the kind of trolling I get. Um, very interesting little JPEGs get sent to me to demonstrate that men are different from women. <laughs> and we're not talking brains here. Um, very small JPEGs, of course. Um, <laughs> But the worst trolling I got was having supported this particular study. So it's something which is very ingrained and very inbuilt in people, and you know, at the basis of all sorts of prejudice. It's something which people feel really challenged by. Um, it's something that neuroscience could address, but as we've seen, there's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So hopefully all of you today um, will realize you know, what the double-edged sword is like and, and, and be primed. So there is a little bit of... Um, these are the things I'd, I'd, I'd like people to take away and remember. Um, brain imaging breakthroughs. Beware neuro-nonsense. Be careful about neurotrash and, and, and neurosexism. Really, you know, next time you look at, um, you know, men are from something or women are from somewhere else, you know, have a check about the neuroscience. The rightly seductive allure of neuroscience. It's fantastic. We really can address issues properly if we're not hidebound by these old ideas, old ideas of always looking for differences. 
Plastic brains and permeable brains, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is that our brains are plastic and they can change and they can recover and they don't need to get old as quickly as, 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 they, as we thought. The bad is that if we're exposing people to the wrong kind of experiences or, the, or no experiences at all, this is going to change, this is going to change their brains. And we're wrapped in a, a cycle of self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's really important that we realize that. And the ugly is where people just will ignore those differences and, and, and just persist in the idea of, of hardwiring. Um, and sex redefined Men and women are both from Earth. I mean, I think that, that probably says it all. So let's get rid of the, the Mars and Venus hokum. Okay, that's me. Any questions? <laughs> God, that was fascinating. Um, can I throw one question at you first, using kind of chairperson's privilege? There's such a big row at the moment about transgender identity, and I wondered what your thoughts were on it um, yep. from a neuroscience okay. point of view. Um, it's a question that comes up quite a lot, as you can imagine, and, and there is a, a big debate in the transgender community and, and the feminist community, and a lot of tension around statements being made about, you know, I've got a female brain. I think that Caitlyn Jenner said that, you know, I've always had a female brain in a, in a, in a male body. I mean, I think actually the, 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 the last, you know, sex redefined is, could explain a lot of the problems that people have. I mean, if you talk to transgender individuals, very often they say, I feel I've been put in the wrong box or the wrong body. You know, I've always felt like a female and, you know, I've been told I'm a male and I should be brought up, you know, in a particular way. And so they go through long, painful journeys um, in order to move from one box to the other. Well, my answer to that is maybe let's get rid of the boxes. If we didn't have the boxes, then those kind of tensions may disappear. I mean, I'm not saying they disappear altogether, but I think, I think the whole transgender issue mm -hmm. actually brings up, you know, really interesting insights into what's going on. Thank you. Right, so we have some roving microphones. If you could stick your hands up. I want to start by taking something from the very top, if you've got a question there. So, um, hi, so, oh, is that working? Um, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist as well, and I wondered what your thoughts were on um, Simon Baron-Cohen's work on the um, autistic male brain, because um, females have been sort of sidelined um, within ASD, which was my specialty, and um, with some of my colleagues, even the vocabulary to use and begin to use, okay, you know, should we say female, should we say male, that already starts us in the wrong foot. So number one, how would you address setting new heuristics for studying something like ASD or a specific um, disorder, and you're looking at male and female participants, and then two, um, when can you start debunking um, Simon Baron-Cohen? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, Thank you. The language is really important. Um, one of the people whose books I trashed uh, runs a website called Brain Sex. Um, and you can take a, a test on that website to prove whether your brain is male or female. Um, and when I spoke to her, I said, you know, she said, you don't have to be a man to have a male brain. So I said, so why do you call it a male brain? And I think... I think language is really important, and I think that's an aspect of it, if that's an answer to your first question. I mean, as Samira said, my, my kind of day job is, is, uh, is neuroimaging and, and autism. Um, and the whole 
underrepresentation of girls in autism is really important. And it, in a way, it, it encapsulates the same ideas because people always thought, so autism is a male disorder. So surprisingly, there's more and more males diagnosed as autistic because that's what people expect. You know, if, if, if a child has behavioral problems, it's much more likely if they're a boy that they'll be um, identified as autistic than if they're a girl. And if you talk to the families of girls with autism, it's been a big, big struggle to get them identified as having this particular problem. So I think the language is really important. Um, second issue, I, I, have, I did have a debate with Simon Baron-Cohen, actually, about men and women, not autism, in the summer. Um, and I did my little rant about you know, the 18th century and why are we still asking these questions. And he charmingly started his response by saying, I agree with Gina, um, which was a bit alarming for the person chairing it because he was hoping we were going to be at each other's throats. Um, I think if you're going to be talking, getting away from the language, so if you're interested in systemizing and empathizing, then that's what you're talking about. You shouldn't be talking about extreme male brain. Um, and I think a lot of the work that he's done, um, particularly the idea that, you know, from a very early age, boys showed preferences for particular objects, um, whereas girls preferred the mother's face, etc., not been replicated. So I think a lot of the work um, early on... Um, on which his, his series are based hasn't been replicated. Thank you. One here. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, two things sort of struck me. The first was that I gather that there's a worse or a bigger problem in Britain and other Northwestern European countries with uh, girls in STEM. And I wondered if you'd um, had an opportunity to consider what's going wrong mm -hmm. in this country in terms of between, you know, time a girl's born by the time she's 18, why there's like okay. literally no women doing computer science. Um, and the second one was that, I'm, you know, you've probably been in the, the business for a while and I wondered if you were, <laughs> so, I mean, not a very long time, obviously, but um, <laughs> if you were surprised at the incredible reluctance to surrender the idea that men aren't necessarily naturally better at maths, you know, it seems, you know, is it just sort of okay. resistance to feminism or sexism or is it, there's something so fundamental about women's skill set. I mean, are you surprised by that, basically? Yeah. Um, Thank you. The issue, the first question, um, yes, I, I, I think it's appalling. I mean, and when you... I mean, Sarah-Jane Blakemore's done some really nice work on the adolescent brain. So you've got this brain, which is not very well wired to resist peer pressure, all sorts of changes in the emotion regulation system, which means they're much more vulnerable to stereotype threat. Age about 14, what do we do? We get them to make life-changing decisions about what subjects they should do. So anybody here has got the ear of the education minister, you know, just stop, at that, stop, look at what you're doing and saying, don't make people make really important decisions when their brain is in that state. So I think, I think that's important. Um, I've lost track of the second question. Oh, it was the whole... Uh, yeah, um, I'm surprised... Well, perhaps not, but I'm surprised by the degree of resistance to anything where you suggest that there aren't fixed male-female differences. Um, I think the whole idea of, of maths, stereotype threat and maths anxiety, which is a kind of very specific type of stereotype threat, emerges very early. I mean, the study I mentioned very briefly was done on nine-year-old girls who were already saying, I'm a girl, I can't do maths. Um, and, and then... The Western society aspect of it too, which you raised, I thought yes. was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, it, interestingly, in Iran, uh, it's a different, um, surprising, <laughs> perhaps given the culture, um, much more likely that women do maths. And, and Maryam Asakani, uh, who won the Fields Medal 
two years ago now, uh, is Iranian. I mean, she moved to California, etc. But again, it's a bit like, if these things are fixed, how come they're different in different cultures? So I am surprised. Um, but then again, people will say, no, girls don't choose to do maths. But I, I don't think that's a biological aspect. So I was just thinking I shouldn't say it, but in Iran, you know it's got the highest divorce rate initiated by women. Just an interesting in correlation. Yeah, right? I, I, <laughs> I, I thought I should mention it, but it's a fact. <laughs> I found it when I went. Um, we had another question just behind. Go for it. Uh, I want to start by saying thank you so much for the talk. I was just wondering what your opinion on same-sex education versus co-education co um, in terms of like encouraging women into STEM subjects or just academic confidence in general. <laughs> yeah, um, it's... A very fraught political question, mm. um, which and it's often the gender differences. I mean, I, one of the I think one of the papers uh, books I showed was Michael Gurian, who has you know boys and girls learn differently. They should be in different schools. They should be taught differently, etc. Um, I think I think that's a problem. I think we're feeding into the you know diversifying or uh, uh, diverting the the. the um, developmental trajectories, not necessarily in positive ways. And I think um, single-set schools, people point to girls doing a lot better. Um, and I think what you're de dealing there is probably dealing with the symptoms and not the cause. So if the reason that girls aren't doing, choosing STEM, STEM subjects because they're surrounded, you know, they, they want to be, you know, people like me. So if people like me are doing physics, I'll do physics. But if if I'm in a mixed-sex environment and people who are doing physics are all male and, you know, I don't want to be the only female or only one of two females, I think that's an issue. I, th I think it's very important. But, de but these kind of data are very used a lot, are misused a lot to, to explore this. There's some really w strange comments from headmistresses about boys learning with their hippocampus and girls doing maths with their cerebral cortex. There was a whole fashion about 10 years ago that you had to have a bottle of water because water on the brain, on the brain yeah, was well, brain gym, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I could, again, have ranted on about brain gym. Uh, £3,000 a teacher to train teachers to do brain gym with kids. You might not know that there's a brain button just under your shoulder blade there, and if you press that, your right hemisphere is... I didn't know that, actually. Surprised. I was quite surprised. <laughs> didn't have to pay £3,000, fortunately. Uh, but yes, I mean... Um, Yes, so, so sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trashing. It, it's a really important question and clearly one that needs to be sorted. Um, but I think using these kind of evidence to support reasons is, is not, not a good use. Thank you so much. I wish we had time for more questions, but I know one of the messages I'm taking away is just what kind of questions do people ask in their research, which reveals so much about underlying um, biases. So thank you for that. Thank you for terrific questions. Yeah, and thanks for a wonderful evening. Yeah, Thanks for listening. Join us again in two weeks' time for our next episode from psychologist Richard Nisbet for a close inspection of human reasoning.